0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with Phil Dave, John Kay and me Clive Roslin. Coming up we'll be speaking to James Serene, the chief executive of BICOM. He'll be telling us about the latest situation in Gaza following Israel being blitzed by no less than 400 rockets by Hamas terrorists. Nigel Layton, Honorary Life Vice President for World Jewish Relief, will be talking about the work that His Royal Highness Prince Charles has done with the charity in honor of his 70th birthday. And we'll also be hearing from Abby Levitt, who's Norwood's fundraising director, and Wayne Kodosh, who is the father of someone who has very much benefited from the work that Norwood has done. We'll be hearing about Wayne's story. And we'll also be hearing about the Norwood annual charity dinner as well, of which the three of us were privileged enough to go to. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week, here's Vivian Krieger.
1: Southern Israel was hit by more than four hundred rockets, which were fired by Hamas from Gaza. It was the largest ever strike in a single day and overwhelmed the Iron Dome missile defence system. An estimated 50 Israelis were injured or treated for trauma. The attack was in retaliation for an Israeli undercover raid into Gaza last weekend when a Hamas commander was killed along with six other Palestinians. Campaigners against anti-Semitism have won the right to a judicial review into whether the organiser of the Al-Hoods Day march can be prosecuted for making anti-Israel comments. Nazim Ali of the Islamic Human Rights Commission had demanded last year that Israel be wiped off the map and that Zionists were partly to blame for the Grenfell disaster. The campaign against anti-Semitism initiated a private prosecution against him, which the Crown Prosecution Service stopped. In New York, a Holocaust survivor has died two weeks after being pushed to the ground at Penn Station by a commuter who was running to catch a train. Kurt Salzinger, who was 89, was with his wife Diana when the incident happened. She was also knocked over. Mr. Salzinger escaped from Vienna before the war along with his parents and brother and finally settled in New York in 1938. He became a professor of psychology and wrote many books and articles on the subject. Hollywood stars Tom Hanks and Michael Keaton were among hundreds of people who took part in a march in memory of the 11 victims of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. The rally, which was held in the downtown area of the city, started with a minute's silence and took place under a banner which read Stronger Than Hate, A Gathering of Unity and Love. And finally, Stan Lee, the American Jewish creator of Spider-Man, X-Men and The Incredible Hulk, amongst others, has died at the age of 95. He co-founded Marvel Comics in 1961 and saw many blockbuster Hollywood films made which featured his creations. After his death was announced, tributes began pouring in from across the entertainment industry.
2: Thank you, Viv. First on the Jewish Views this week, Justin Cohen, the news editor of the Jewish News, joins us to review your copy of that paper for this week. Let's look at the front page. Now, I personally am involved with an East Hearts Council interfaith event this coming weekend, this Sunday, to do with a celebration of diverse communities. And it is, if you like, diverse communities that are featured on the front page this week.
3: Yeah, as you know, that we often have in our pages have to report on the bad news on the rising islamophobia the rising anti-semitism on how our country is divided along brexit lines and all sorts of things well for the last year or so or a bit longer than that that's actually since this whole idea was first conceived we've been working with the church times and british muslim tv to establish a list a comprehensive list of 21 young leaders under the age of 40 who are leading the way in those three communities in interfaith links in this country and helping to build those bridges and build those understanding between people of faith and it's quite historic because it's actually the first time ever in the world that faith media of different communities have actually worked together in any way in such a way so this list is being published simultaneously in the other two outlets as well and we've we, you'll see on the front page of the paper the, the faces of the 21 from the three communities how were they chosen So we put together a panel of judges of of kind of significant leaders over the age of 40, as it were, we wanted that buy in as well, from the three communities, and also the, the the different strands of the three communities. So from the Jewish community, for example, we had uh, Laura Jana Klausner, Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner from the Reform Movement. We had Rabbi Joseph Dweck from Spanish and Portuguese, and also Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from the United Synagogue. So we had different strands of community coming in the same way the Christian community is represented by someone from the Methodist community, someone from the Catholic community, and someone also from the Anglican community. And, and together they sat down after we received nominations, about a 100 nominations from across the country. There's a good spread. Also, a good spread, I think it's quite nice to see genders on the front page here. So the the judges came up with with their top 21. We also selected another nine, three from each community, who are highly commended. And like we've done in previous lists, we've also published a full list of all the nominations we received as part of our seven pages of coverage this week.
4: How many pages of coverage have you given to
3: Prince Charles? What are you saying about him? It's just the two, I'm afraid, for Prince Charles this week compared to seven for interfaith, although there is obviously a a keen connection there because Prince Charles himself has been very much at the forefront of interfaith relations and of developing good contacts with both the Jewish and the Muslim communities in particular. We've interviewed a number of people here who, over the years, have come into contact with Prince Charles in his work in the Jewish community. And in particular, of course, we've brought out his involvement in Holocaust education and remembrance, and in specifically with regards to the kinder transport. Many listeners will remember that about 10 years ago now, it was Prince Charles's idea that led to the establishment of a community centre in Krakow. He he went to the country. He saw that there were elderly Holocaust survivors there who were living in poverty, who didn't have a place to meet. He came back and suggested that someone should help set up an old age home for these people. Well, he he came across World Jewish Relief. They went out to the country and investigated what could be done and came back with a suggestion that really a community center for not just the elderly but also the younger members of the community would be the best way to fulfill his, his vision. And a short time later, the community center in Krakow was established. It's 10 years ago this year that that was opened, and Charles went to that opening ceremony. And I think what's quite striking here is that it's a common pattern, it seems, through, through people that establish some kind of relationship with Charles, whether it be as individuals, people like Lord Sachs, who we've spoken to, or as charities like World Jewish Relief. It seems that once Charles has taken an interest in a cause and once he has given his heart and soul to it, it's not just a short term thing, but like his kind of his raw responsibilities, it's something that lasts many, many years. So he's always been pro-Jewish, in other words. Yeah. He's always tried to help. Yes, I think across the board, Charles has shown his support for the community in all sorts of ways. Of course, this year he was at the 70th anniversary celebrations for Israel a few months before his own 70th at the Royal Albert Hall. His support for the kinder transport has been exemplary. He's visited a number of Jewish schools, JFS Yavna, over the years. And I think, uh, really, in terms of relations between the royal family and the Jewish community, he has taken this on in a quite astounding way.
0: Well, let's move on, because uh, you mentioned Krakow there. Well, I I believe that from London to Poland, one way or another, for some London taxis. Why have you got London taxis in the Jewish news? What am I missing?
3: A rather large picture of a London taxi driving across the page, page 11 of this week's paper, and also featuring a Jewish News logo because we are supporting and media partnering on this quite incredible initiative But from the charity From the Depths. They have decided, together with some taxi owners in the UK, three in total, to send a couple of uh, of London taxis that aren't being used anymore in this country but are perfectly usable across to Poland and they're going to be used to provide a free taxi service for Polish righteous among the nations. And I think it's quite a quite a heartwarming story this. Certainly is
0: one can only hope though that the meter wasn't running when they were being taken from London to Poland. Well I hope so. I
3: hope so <laughs> well, I hope not
0: even let's try That's and okay. shoe <laughs> let's try and on one more in. And of course We all know that on the 11th of November, we take time to remember those who have served within previous wars. And a week later, people may or may not realise that we have the Ajax Parade, which, of course, honours the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women. That is taking place on Sunday the 18th. And I believe that Ajax is quite rightly in the paper this week.
3: Yeah, again, two pages for this. We have things that's that's the theme of, of this paper review. We've got a big feature on the existing head of Ajax, Jack Weiser, um, who's actually stepping down after this year's annual parade. And he's going to be passing on to a fellow called Danny Yank. We've got a joint interview with the two of them. So it's really a passing on of the baton, the passing on of the, of the remembrance of the contribution of British Jews to the armed forces. And
0: those, of course, with a keen ear would have heard both of those gentlemen on last week's episode of The Jewish Views.
3: Exactly. Absolutely. And We also focus on the fact that a number of JFS pupils are going to be marching uh, as part of this weekend's parade at the Cenotaph because... If Again, if you were reading last week's paper, you will have seen that hundreds, if not thousands, of former JFS pupils enlisted for the war, regardless of their ages in some cases. And their contribution to the war is something that's not particularly well known. But they've done a number of activities in school to link what happened then to their pupils now and to teach them about what happened. And they're going to be taking part in in the parade as well.
0: And just to clarify, that's quite unheard of we don't normally have jfs pupils marching in the ajax parade do we
3: i I think there's often concerns about how the ajax parade is given a longevity in the future once servicemen are no longer taking part in the same way that we have the concerns about once holocaust survivors have gone what happens well this is a fantastic i think starting point and hopefully will provide an example for other schools to actively take part in the parade in future years
0: terrific will we look out for that on sunday the 18th and of course it's also in the paper on what page that is page five. Fantastic. Justin Kern, news editor of The Jewish News. Thank you very much. That's where we'll have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But do not forget, you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk.
2: You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, throughout this week, more than 400 rockets have been fired into Israel by Hamas militants, overwhelming the Iron Dome defence system. The latest attack has left many Israelis needing treatment for injury or trauma. James Serene is chief executive of BICOM, the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre. He joins us now. James, how did this start in the first place, this latest flare-up?
5: Well, this latest flare-up began when elite Israeli uh, special forces forces team were in Gaza on some kind of undercover mission. And they were discovered, a firefight ensued. And then in response to that, and the fact that the firefight led to the death of about five or six Hamas fighters and a a local Hamas commander, Hamas and the Palestinian factions in Gaza decided that they wanted to have a significant response on Israel because of what happened. Now, that response could have been calibrated on a, a quite a wide spectrum. But for various reasons, they made a decision for a very, very severe response. And as you said, hundreds of missiles and mortars fired at Israel. And perhaps most significantly, an anti-tank missile was fired at a bus on the Gaza border, which just seconds earlier was full of Israeli soldiers. So there there was real intent about what Hamas and the Palestinian factions were trying to do
2: here. So had the Israelis not gone in in some sort of undercover mission, might this not have happened?
5: Well, I think we've got to be careful about cause and effect here. These kind of operations are taking place all the time. I mean, Israel and various elements in the army and, and in the Shimbet, the National Security Agency, are carrying out operations against against Hamas all the time. In the West Bank, you know, we heard the head of the Shin Bet just last week saying that there have been hundreds of attempts by Hamas to carry out terrorist attacks in the West Bank. So there's a shadow war going on, and it's pretty intense. We just got a glimpse of that shadow war. It's possible that that undercover operation could have just got in and out without being detected, and we would know nothing about it. The other thing in terms of, you know, was this direct catalyst – Hamas wanted a response but it could have been something else that happened in the next couple of days. There's been a cycle of attack and retaliation that's been going on really since March when they made the decision to start border incursions on the Gaza border and to have all these violent protests. So, so we're in the same cycle really that's been carrying on. I'd see this more as this was just a, this was just a spark that they decided to use for their purposes.
2: Now Israel responded quite strongly. But now, at the insistence of the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, there appears to be a truce between Hamas and the Israeli government. Now, this has resulted in the defence minister, Avigdor Lieberman, having resigned to taking his coalition party out of the governing coalition. Therefore, what can this have in terms of the impact on, on Israel's stance and its future in terms of governing because there's talk of an early election.
5: Yeah, I mean, the intersection here between the politics and the actual military strategy is is, is, is fascinating, as, as, as you would expect. There's a real debate about Israel's response and whether it was tough enough. In fact, there's been a debate that's been going on since March that Israel hasn't been tough enough. And there's a lot of Israelis who are unhappy, particularly in southern Israel, who are basically saying, you know, our lives are being ruined by this. You know, you can see just this week where people uh, living near the Gaza border, spent, you know, 24, 36 hours in air raid shelters. They believe the response hasn't been tough enough. Um, Yes, 150, 160 strikes on installations in Gaza, Hamas military targets. But, you know, these are the kind of strikes which are very precision, they're intelligence led. And there are all sorts of stories of, you know, warnings to the Al-Aqsa Hamas TV station before it was bombed. There was a report I just saw before from the Telegraph where they'd spoken to somebody who was on the phone to the Israeli army for nearly 45 minutes, being urged to evacuate and make sure that the... neighboring buildings were evacuated so that the neighbors of a Hamas building were not harmed. So these are very particular kinds of strikes. And there are people in Israel saying this really didn't hit hard enough. And also, let's remember, there is an entire subterranean command network that Hamas and the other Palestinian factions have. And let's think about it. There is, there is an entire like spider's web of installations and accommodation underground in Gaza, which these factions have been using for a long time, and they are simply untouched. When these strikes happen. So is, some Israelis are saying it's not tough enough. You're right. Avigdor Lieberman resigned. He has been saying for some time that he wanted a tougher response. And he clearly was not happy at this ceasefire with Hamas and the other factions that was agreed. But there's, there's a cold logic here, which is that Hamas doesn't want a full scale war, but it will Take part in limited attacks on Israel. Israel does not want a full-scale war either. And and Bibi Netanyahu, for all the kind of brickbats thrown at him that he's some um, right-wing extremist, he's a very very cautious military leader. I think under his premiership, there have been the fewest amount of Israeli casualties. He hasn't committed to that many operations. The latest one is in 2014. He's very reluctant to take Israel to war. And he also knows that after that loss of life of a war, you'd be back to the same reality, which is Hamas is in control of Gaza. And there's only really a political solution they need to pursue. In terms of the Israeli politics now, Avigdor Lieberman has left the government, he's left the Israeli governing majority, you know, really on a knife edge. And you have other coalition parties now saying they are supporting a call for early elections not just because of what's happened in gaza i mean there was already a lot of israeli pundits saying that we were heading to early elections various dynamics to do with domestic political legislation and just really we're in the cycle where an election has to take place by next november and each party is trying to find the optimum conditions to go into an election campaign so what lieberman did is he jumped in a way that he thought would get noticed and in a way that he could set the narrative and say I'm the one who's worried about Israeli security. I want to be tough on Hamas and expose the weakness of Bibi Netanyahu and the other coalition partners. That's really what his resignation was all about.
0: With regards to the previous attacks that we have witnessed on either side, Mm. there is something once in a while that crops up with these attacks that where one stands out, and for some reason this one stands out, it just feels Mm. a bit different this time. And even though you even referred earlier on to saying that these sort of attacks do happen quite often and sort of all the time. But this one somehow is is different. Is that right? Well, this one, this
5: one stood out in terms of scale. I think we saw the largest number of missiles and mortars fired almost ever in such a short period of time. Over a 24-hour period, you saw... 500-odd missiles and mortars fired. That's a huge level of intensity. And there was something quite specific that Hamas and the Palestinian factions did, was they concentrated fire on specific areas in a deliberate attempt to overwhelm the Iron Dome missile defense system. And they were successful at doing that. They managed to hit houses in Ashkelon and you had, a, it was actually a Palestinian man from Hebron who was in a house in Ashkelon who was killed. And there were two, I think, Palestinian women who were severely injured. So, yeah, they, hit, they, they scored direct hits. And they did that because of the scale and the way that they did it. And they did that quite deliberately. So that was that was very noticeable. And, and there, was, there was real intent there, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to cause maximum damage. But the intent was capped. They made a decision not to go beyond Ashkelon. They talked about hitting Tel Aviv, but they know that hitting Tel Aviv takes the conflict to a much higher level, much higher degree of casualties. But in terms of perspective, it's interesting to note that without the Iron Dome missile defense system in the first place, you'd probably be looking at 100 plus Israeli casualties. That's the scale of of what it could have been. And also, if that bus would have been full of soldiers and would have been hit, we'd we'd be, you know, a few days into a major war.
0: But now that that Iron Dome system has been put to the ultimate test and ultimately in in some horrible way penetrated for one of a better term, Mm. should we be worried by this? Because does that mean now that they've come up with a strategy to break the Iron Dome system?
5: Well, I think I, I wouldn't want to read too much into that because you've got both sides who are constantly trying to test the other and there's a, there's a constant game that takes place, you know, on a daily cycle of, of one trying to beat the other. I think if I was a, a, you know, Israeli general now, I'd say to you, look, you know, the, the threat from Hamas is not existential. It's on a lower level of the threats. It can be coped with through the Iron Dome system. Yes, they were able to break through, but that breakthrough was was very limited. And in terms of, what they can do in the future, you know that their main weapon was also to build tunnels to get into Israel and kidnap Israeli civilians and commit terrorist attacks. And Israel came up with the technology to have a kind of underground barrier. It took them a few years, and there was great criticism that you know the great tech superpower Israel had not managed to deal with this threat. But they eventually did, and they're able now to detect underground tunnels and to create a barrier where they can't get into Israel and, and ultimately to destroy them. So I think you've always got to be concerned where something new happens, but you've also got to understand that you know everyone is always learning about what each phase uh, has happened. I, I think this is ultimately on both sides. You've got the civilians in southern Israel whose, whose lives are, uh, are civilian impaired. And you've also got the civilians of Gaza that, that, that everyone really wants to see improved. And I think, you know, it's like the, the, the quip that, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but at the moment there's no tunnel. So you've got to kind of get to the point where there is some kind of political solution. But I think the issue we have at the moment is twofold. Hamas has not decided what it actually wants to do in terms of achieving its objective. It wants to lead the Palestinian people and it wants to be leading the struggle against Israel. At the moment, it's not doing particularly well at either and it hasn't yet made a decision about what it wants to do and whether it will do enough to try and reach a long-term political agreement with Israel. Many would say that's impossible. Hamas just wants to destroy Israel. But in the shorter term, there may be some scope there. But in order to try and achieve it, There's a very high political price for any Israeli government that wants to make that deal. First of all, they've got to talk to Hamas. And secondly, they'll have to get past this issue of potentially releasing Hamas prisoners and in order to get bodies of Israeli soldiers back and Israeli civilians who are captured in Gaza. That's the first round of that prize. Then you can start talking about infrastructure, water, electricity. And let's not forget, just last week before all this happened, Israel had done a deal with Qatar, one of the only Arab countries that's supporting Hamas, to provide cash. $50 million went into Gaza last week in suitcases to pay Hamas civil servants and others and 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 there was also diesel paid for by qatar israeli diesel going into power the power plants in gaza and they were looking at 16 hours a day of electricity which is far better than the four hours a day they were getting before so they were actually on an upward curve in terms of improving kind of civilian life in gaza
2: James Serene, Chief Executive of BICOM, the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you.
0: If you'd like to contact us about any of the stories that you hear on this edition of The Jewish Views, then we would love to hear from you. You can always email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash thejewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk and of course all of those details can be found at our website, jewishviews.co.uk.
4: You're listening to The Jewish Views, in association with The Jewish News. This week, His Royal Highness Prince Charles has celebrated his 70th birthday, and the Prince of Wales is renowned for his charity work, and that includes within the Jewish community. Amongst those organisations that the Prince has been involved in is World Jewish Relief, and to find out about some of the remarkable things he's done for them over his 70 years – we can now speak to Nigel Layton, who's Honorary Life Vice President for World Jewish Relief. Nigel, what exactly has the Prince done for us?
6: The Prince has done fantastic work for World Jewish Relief. He actually approached us when he went on a private mission to Krakow and approached us via Dame Vivian Duffield to help the Holocaust survivors in Krakow. He wanted to build an old age home for them so they could see out their years in dignity and we then did an assessment and went to him and said actually what we'd love to do is build a Jewish community center for old and new alike so the the old could live out their years in a vibrant atmosphere with the youth and he agreed to do that and he then made the project happen and helped us along the way and eight years later We opened the Jewish. He opened with the Duchess of Cornwall the uh, Jewish Community Centre in Krakow. So, the first thing is the Krakow project, and he is currently has also supported our livelihood development program, where we put young mothers and other people. We retrain them and put them back into work to get them off welfare lists in Moldova, Belarus, and uh, Ukraine. And currently, he's supporting us with our homes program, home repair program, where we are repairing thousands of homes of elderly people, repairing the roofs and the windows, and he's helping us with that program as well as uh, overall pa- role patron of World Jewish Relief.
4: So although he joined you in this position, he's gone on working very hard for you.
6: Yeah, he did the initial project, and he was only patron of the Krakow Community Centre project to start with, And he has developed that into helping with the other project. And I think three, two or three years ago, became our full royal patron. And, you know, we couldn't have asked for more for him of, of what he's done. What amongst all those things that he's done for
4: you, what is the thing that you think is the most important of all?
6: I think the opening of the Jewish community center in Krakow, you know, 40 minutes from Auschwitz, with a community where literally the lights had gone out and there were very few Jewish people left there. And as we grew the community, what he's done is reborn a community. Now thousands of Jews use the center and he's reborn the community so close to Auschwitz and given them a future and a life and really has saved that entire community. I find that terribly
4: interesting because I've been to Krakow and when I was there a number of years ago, when I was there, it seemed as though all the Jews from there had disappeared.
6: And, and this is what, what we were told initially. But when we went there, uh, when we understood it, when I traveled there probably 10 to 15 times, I realized every time I went, somebody came to me and said, I've just realized my Jewish roots. I'm now prepared to talk out about my Jewish heritage, and my Judaism. I was too afraid till now. The number of Jews there have come out of the woodwork. They were living very quietly, and the centre has, A, enabled them to do that and, B, with all the students and everything. It's now a thriving Jewish community.
4: I find that very, very interesting, because when I was there, they said to me, Krakow is really like Disneyland, because we have kosher shops and a Jewish area, and there's nobody here who really needs them. And this seems to be that Prince Charles has helped this happen.
6: I think he's helped this. He was the catalyst to make it happen. Without him asking the question, we would never have done this, for the very reason you said, that no one believed there were enough Jews there. But once we looked into it, there indeed were, and he indeed was the one who made it happen. Without him, it would not have happened. And now we are looking for a new building or for new premises because the centre is bursting. We have over 100 people to Friday night Shabbat dinners and the centre is bursting and literally we haven't got enough room.
2: I know that Krakow has become a sort of Jewish cultural centre but I was always under the impression that was visitors, it was tourists, not necessarily Jews living in Krakow. Those that are attending the centre who are Jewish... How many are we talking about, and presumably we're not necessarily talking about Jews born in Poland, are we? Not necessarily
6: born in Krakow, but a lot of them are. There are, you know, I think there are now four or 5,000 members. And I think over half of those are locals or living in Krakow. And, you know, less of those were born there, but still many were
2: born there. So why did Prince Charles particularly say Krakow in Poland and not anywhere else in the world in terms of supporting a Jewish community?
6: Well, initially, he went on a private visit. He saw, he met four, I think it was four Holocaust survivors in their latter years. And he came back and said, I want to help these people. And I think, Instead of building a sort of relatively small Jewish old age home, which is what he had in mind, we went and said, well, look, we, we want to be a bit more ambitious than this. Would you help us build somewhere for the elderly to go every day and be warm and do things, but also a center that become a, a honeypot as a, for the future of the community? And he absolutely loved the idea. And, you know, he said, yeah, I'd love to. And that's what we did.
4: So as I said earlier, I've been I was there a number of years ago. So if I were to go now and go to that great square, which is one of the largest squares of a city in the world, those people that I thought were not Jews who ran the kosher shops and the kosher restaurants and everything else. They are, in fact, real Polish Jews, real Krakow Jews, and this is mainly thanks in some ways to Prince Charles.
6: Yes, I mean, I I, I won't tell you that all of them are Krakow Jews. I don't know. I haven't gone into that level of detail. but a lot of them are. A lot of the people in local businesses there are local Jews. Some are not. And I think, you know, we have to respect that some are running those restaurants who aren't Jewish, but that happens anywhere in the world, to be honest.
0: How important would you say it is for an organisation such as World Jewish Relief to have the backing of someone like his Royal Highness Prince Charles?
6: It's fantastic to have the heir of the throne as a patron. You know, it lends. He, He does a lot of due diligence before he associates himself with a charity, so You know, it it helps us in terms of our, our reputation and when we get new donors. But more importantly, just to have somebody who is actually really passionate about the cause, passionate about helping people in need. He's come to our dinners and has been moved. And actually, at the last dinner he came to, we showed him a video of our home repair program. And his his question at the table was, "How much do you need to raise? How can I help?" And that sort of attitude is 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 you know invaluable, and to have his endorsement is is, is wonderful.
4: And he's going to continue doing that, I imagine. He's you. going
6: to continue doing that. He's you know, and 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 he's just you know, he's helping us with our current program, and then you know, hopefully, when we've done that, he'll help with another. But every time we've asked him to help with another program when he finished the previous one, he's been delighted to do so.
2: It's delightful to hear that, Nigel Layton. Thank you very much indeed. If you'd like any more information on any of the stories or the guests that you've heard in this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website,
0: jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Now, on Monday evening, Norwood hosted a rather lavish annual dinner at the Grosvenor House Hotel in central London. It was attended by over a 1,000 supporters of the charity and included entertainment from the winner of this year's Britain's Got Talent, Lost Voice Guy. How do I know this? Well, that's because the three of us, namely Clive, John and myself, were lucky enough to be invited – to talk about the evening and how it went we can now speak to abby levitt norwood's fundraising director and wayne kodosh someone who knows only too well about the work norwood do they join us in the studio now welcome to you both hello abby i think i will start off with you based on i mentioned a rather lavish dinner that we all attended earlier on in the week and my goodness me it was a fantastic affair was it not
7: it was a fantastic affair both in terms of how many people want to still join us every year to to celebrate what we do, but also in terms of the fundraising. It's our main fundraising event of the year. And so what happens on that evening is hugely influential around the success of Norwood in terms of the work we can do every year.
0: And the figures that were being battered about on the evening were quite eye-watering. Millions of pounds, we're talking, (laughs) that is required for Norwood to be able to function, how much, dare I ask, was raised from... Are we allowed to know how much was raised? Yes, yes, we
7: (laughs) we announced it. We have a lot of pressure from our trustees to come up with a figure and we announced it on Monday afternoon, I think, and including gift aid, we think it was in the region of 3.2 million.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And so, of course, can you try and explain to us just how that kind of money of which, as I say, is unfortunately only a a fraction of what is actually required for Norwood to function per annum. But can you try and explain to us what that money would go towards and some of the people that would benefit from that?
7: Okay, so just very top line, because as you can imagine, an organisation of Norwood's size is really complex. But our business divides into two parts. One is we work with people from light and mild learning difficulties right through to people with quite extreme and challenging disabilities, autism, etc. The people in that category all get a package in some way from the government. So Norwood, in, in essence, receives about two thirds of its money, about 24 million from the government. But that money, every penny of it goes towards 24 hour care to the people that we support with disabilities. The other third of our business, which is our family and children's service, where we we work with young people and families with mental health problems, who suffer from abuse, all sorts of projects. That money we get no government support for at all. And we are charged with raising twelve million a year to fund that.
0: And someone who knows only too well about how Norwood can help them, as I mentioned, is Wayne. Just tell us a little bit about what Norwood does your family how you benefit from the work they do
8: well it's very simple jake is now 24 about to be 25 jake being your son by the way yes and jake has autism and it's manifested itself in being him being non-verbal so he can't speak and has limited understanding and a number of years ago we were faced with what was going to happen to jake in the future because apparently I'm not going to live forever. So consequently, my wife made contact with Norwood, and Norwood opened its doors and took Jake on. So five years ago, he moved into a house in Edgware with three other young men similar, who have similar problems, and he's looked after there, and that's where, that's where he now lives and where he operates from and where he thrives, because of Norwood.
0: And obviously when it comes to, I'm not going to try and pretend to be an expert on a condition such as autism, because I know there are many different degrees of it, Mm -hmm. but with autism my understanding is that familiarity and surroundings play a massive part in one's ability to function. What was the transition from going from living at home to sort of semi-independent living as it is now?
8: Well, Norwood handled that perfectly, because... Jake was introduced to the house, went to see it. Um, there was a period of acclimatization, and he was excited by it, and he was ready for it. Uh, in fact, he was really more ready for it than I was. So my, and Norwood recognized that fact, actually, because Norwood organized for me in particular to have counseling, which is one of the services that, you know, they go out of their way to provide because they recognize when there's a problem and the one that had the problem really was me Mm -hmm.
2: so up to that point had he been living with you
8: oh yes most definitely
2: so for 25 years of his
8: life well actually it was 19 because he's 25 now or about to be uh, so for 19 years he was living with us yes
2: and was that really stressful for you presumably it would be even though you loved him very much it couldn't have been
8: easy No, it's not easy bringing up a child who has complex needs. Uh, We're very fortunate because Jake is laid back, not as complex a character to live with as many other children like him, who we see all the time or saw at school and at the Norwood clubs that... He attends, but still, nevertheless, yes, especially when he was younger, and his understanding was far more limited.
0: And Abby, this is just an example of, of one of the many families that Norwood do help. It clearly, is just amazing work the charity does, and really essential work as well.
7: It is essential work. I think that at the heart of it, at the heart of the whole Norwood offer, is that there is culturally appropriate. So there are many people in our community, I would say probably the vast majority of people in our community with care needs, families with people with care needs, who want to see their relatives, their children in a Jewish setting. And so Norwood is providing that as an option. The state doesn't provide any faith-based settings. And that's something that's hugely important to the community. But I would say that we do that at a level above which services are provided in terms of quality that they're provided by the state and that's also important
4: jake came to you when he was about 15 no 19 19 and will he be with you now for the rest of rest of his life and and his, you as his father can be happy about that
8: yes i've often said that one of the biggest fears as a parent of a child with special in, with special needs is who's going to look after them when i'm gone That's something that nags away in your brain and it's there morning, noon and night. And so, therefore, the fact that Norwood have stepped forward, opened their door, taken him in and have made the commitment to look after him for life is an unbelievable benefit. And is he really happy there? Extremely. You mentioned
2: that you needed help when he left to go and live Mm -hmm. away from you. That presumably was because for 19 years he was in your home and then suddenly he was gone.
8: Yes. In actual fact, it's funny, you see, because people say, well, you'll get used to it. It's like a child going off to university. But it's not because you can't phone Jake and say, how are you? Because he won't answer. The fact is that when you've got a child like Jake, he is your baby. I know all our children are our babies, but he is a baby that doesn't have the independence, doesn't have that independent streak. And if he does, he can't verbalize it. He can't make that known. So consequently, you are handing over your most precious gift to an organization. And you think to yourself, how are they going to know when he's unhappy? How are they going to know what's wrong? But they do.
2: You mentioned Abby about the three million or so that you raised the other day at the the dinner. One of the speakers at that event talked about you needing—I don't know if it was twelve million or fifteen Correct. million yep. a year—in yep. order to do what you do. Where do you get the rest of the money from?
7: So it's twelve million. Where do we get the rest of it? We graft very hard for it. So a percentage of the—we run twenty events a year, and all of those events return us income because they're sponsored. And we have a lot of corporates at those events, we get individual donations. So that brings in a lot of money. We have some wonderful donors and supporters who are with us year in year out. So individual donations is really important. Trusts and foundations are a big area, whether it's something like the Big Lottery or whether it's the Jaime and Sadie Cohen Family Foundation. So there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done to drive that funding but that's absolutely vital to us.
4: How many people are you looking after at the moment?
7: It's about, we work with about 2,000 people a year and that's part residential and that's part, so those are people living with us 24 hours a day and for life and I think that's something that is really important that people don't realise that a house with four young adults, which where, Jay, where, where Jake is, is his home for life. And we have a number of those homes. If you go to Ravenswood, which is one of our founding residential care accommodations near Reading, we have people there who are now in their, well into their 60s who've been there since they were four or five. So it really is a family for those people. And then there is the, the Family and Children's Service, which are day services and also some respite services.
0: It's amazing work you do. And just in case no one says it often enough, thank you very much indeed for (laughs) what you do. But I'm afraid that is where we're going to have to leave it. But Abby Levitt and Wayne Kodosh, thank you for telling us about everything that Norwood does, including the annual dinner on The Jewish Views.
4: Time now for the Rabbinic Thought for the Week. And it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence of Kinloss United Synagogue in Finchley.
9: This week's Parsha is Vayetze. It tells of Jacob's flight from his brother Esau and the journey that he makes to his uncle Laban, where he marries Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel. On his journey, he spends a night in the desert where he dreams of a ladder climbing to heaven with angels ascending and descending. On awakening, he makes the observation, surely God is in this place and I hadn't known it. There's plenty of rabbinic debate over this line. There is the concern that Jacob, with all his piety, may have been unaware that God was everywhere. Could this be? Surely he knew. There's also debate over where the this place was. Many Midrashim place it on Mount Moriah, the site of the binding of Isaac, and later the temple. However, Jacob calls this place Bet-El, which we know is to the north of Jerusalem. He had been heading northwards from 'er Beersheba, and he must have passed Mount Moriah on the way. So where did Jacob spend that night and dedicate his altar? The Midrashim, which contend with the geography of it all, have the ladder slanting, its foot in Beersheba, where he started, its midpoint over Jerusalem, and the head, the entrance to heaven, right above Jacob's resting place in Bethel. Some also suggest that the earth moved, or bridged Bethel with Yerushalayim, to make them physically one, and this connection topographically possible. In deconstructing the verse, I think there is an aspect to the image of the ladder which should be neither missed nor dismissed. The Torah so far has presented a God up in heaven and humans down on earth. When mankind and God interact, be it through dialogue or through angels, God's voice booms from the heavens or the angels are wandering on earth. So far, heaven and earth have been presented as two separate entities, much like a child's drawing with green grass and trees at the foot of the paper, and a blue sky with the sun and the clouds at the top of the paper, and a hefty patch of white paper separating the two. Our ladder, Jacob's ladder, is the first indication that the two connect. Jacob knew that God was in the heavens, Jacob knew that God was to be found on earth, Jacob knew that God was there in 'er Beersheba, and in Jerusalem, and in Bethel but there was something different that Jacob appreciated when he woke from his vision. Now, Jacob knew that heaven and earth were bridged. Moreover, a channel to God existed in that void. There was an acknowledgement of godliness in the white spaces. In the in-between... Often we divide up our lives a little like Jacob's first impression, a little like the child's picture. We have pockets of godly life, what we eat, the Shabbat and festive rituals, the time we spend in shul. But in our work, in our leisure, our relationships and our friends, we're different selves. True spiritual living isn't apportioning moments for me and moments for God. It's making sure there are no God-free gaps in anything we do. We could do that by running around and filling in the blanks one patch at a time. What we learn from Parshat Vayetze is the concept of dvekut, connecting ourselves with Hashem in heaven, with the bridging bond, and then there are no blanks in our lives at all.
2: Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue in Finchley. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, James Serene from BICOM, the Britain-Israel Communications and Research Centre. Nigel Layton, Honorary Life Vice President for World Jewish Relief. Abby Levitt from Norwood and Wayne Kodesh talking to us about his experiences with Norwood with his son, Jake. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. From me, John Kay. Me, Clive Rosslyn, And me, Phil Dave. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Bye-bye.